everybody. My name is Lynn, grateful member of Al-Anon. Um, I'd like to start by thanking Mary Beth for inviting me to speak when she asked me to speak on the joys and the journey. I've sort of learned, you know, if people ask you to do something in Al-Anon and to be of service, you just do what they ask. Uh, and she said, well, would you speak on the joys and the journey? And I thought... Man, I remember the beginning. There was nothing real joyful about that. But I suppose I could put a little twist on the story and and, um, concentrate on the joy. And then as I was trying to figure out what I should really speak about, if if it's about the joys in the journey, and I thought, well, the only thing I really have to speak about is my story anyways. And so um, I'm very grateful to be here. I have um, been in Al-Anon seriously for 14 years with a couple of not-so-serious years before that. And um, I, I'd like to start by uh, welcoming the newcomers. I, I don't know if you're comfortable letting us know who you are, but you have those red dots. We already know. Um, you actually are, are probably the most important people in this room, and it is because newcomers come and remind us of where we've been that some of us who've been around for a while can continue to work a program because we need that reminding. It's very, very important. So I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm glad to be following Kathy and Willie in their great talks on the 11th and 12th steps. Um, they are definitely women I look up to uh, as, as great examples of program and how to work a program. And I am here today in this room. There are representatives from Michigan who, when I speak, I, uh, some of them are um, Herb's sponsees and, and some are mine. And... My sponsor is also in the room, so there's this sort of complete circle about being up here and speaking, and that's very, very, very wonderful for me, very exciting. I want to start by just um, doing a reading. One of the things about the journey has been literature, and I don't know, um, some of you know all about it, and some of you may not know much about it, but they came out with a book, I think, in 97, How Al-Anon Works. I use this one a lot because it's just loaded. It's kind of like having our own big book, finally, you know. So I'd like to read you a little part from the welcome just to get started. Um, We who live or have lived lived with the problem of alcoholism understand as perhaps few others can. We, too, were lonely and frustrated, but in Al-Anon we discover that no situation is really hopeless and that it is possible for us to find contentment and even happiness whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. We urge you to try our program. It has helped many of us find solutions that lead to serenity. So much depends on our own attitudes, and as we learn to place our problem in its true perspective, we find that it loses its power to dominate our thoughts and our lives. I'm really grateful for that part of the opening because um, I really have found serenity in this program. I really have found a new way of life, and I just hope to be able to share a story that people can relate to um, and that will provide some opportunity of hope for the newcomers. I relied so heavily on people who had been in the program for some time when I first got here because there was no way in the early stages of coming to Al-Anon that I could see how our life would get better. I could see how other people's lives got better and at least, you know, think that if I did some of the things that they did that we would have that same uh, level of hope. So um, with that I'm going to just kind of follow that that format of um, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, and uh, and tell you a bit about my story, and then give you guys some time to to talk about your own journeys. Um, I grew up in a wonderful family with lots of great home life and playful times and all of that. But there was some sickness in my family, um, illness. My father was really sick when I was young, and quite absent and then my brother almost died from nephritis and so everybody was kind of absent watching over him in the hospital it was back in the days when medicine was was still um, young in both of those areas and um, so I was often left with um, my aunt and and her family and my grandmother and that was fine it was a safe secure place but I did learn very early about taking care of people and being kind of being the healthy one and the one who could kind of pull it together and I think um, I can just kind of jump from that to all my alcoholic boyfriends and begin to tell you <laughs> tell you my story about my codependency. I, I don't think it was visible that much when I was a kid, but I think it got real visible as my adolescence kicked in and I moved on to college and whatnot. You know, that being said, I, I do remember that just about everybody I hung out with needed some help. 
You know, I was I mean, they just needed some help, whether it was, like, I remember one of my friends, Sue, um, her parents were alcoholics. Her father was a judge, and her mother was a, just a, a drunk. She was always drunk, and Sue was one of my best friends growing up. She is now an AA, and I see her very rarely, but it just makes sense to me, since we have run into each other in adulthood, that she would be my friend. Every once in a while, she'd be over the house, and all of a sudden, she'd be drunk in front of my parents' house, smashing a bottle on the sidewalk, and... Uh, and I would say to my parents, you know, isn't this horrible? And they would say yes, and that was the end of it. There really wasn't much discussion, and my parents were not angry, and they seemed to be, you know, pretty, um, actually pretty clueless about anything related to alcohol. There wasn't uh, anything in the family that I know of that would teach us about, except for one great uncle who was the most fun. He was from Pittsburgh, and he would show up, and he was the one with the ruddy face and the great sense of humor, and he was probably half pickled by the time I got to know him as a kid. But as as my life progressed, as my adolescence, I was a pretty rebellious adolescent. But you know, I, every boyfriend I had, my father would just turn green. They were they were all trouble. And I went off to college, and I um, within a couple of years of being in college, I just needed some experience. So I I put a backpack on my back and went off to Israel. And um, I, I'm Jewish, so my parents thought that was a good thing. Uh, and I met this nice Catholic French boy. <laughs> Um, we we began to date when he came to visit in the United States. You know, it was back in the day when everybody traveled with backpacks, and so we all traveled with backpacks. And he showed up with a couple other kids who were on the kibbutz. And, you know, I was really attracted to this man. And um, while he was visiting in Michigan, he got a phone call from his brother. And it was it was probably a week or two after he was already staying in Ann Arbor, and the brother called to tell him his father died a week ago. And that was it. That We didn't talk about it. You know, well, my dad's dead. And that was the end of it for a while. I mean, I didn't really understand it, but you will understand it when I tell you that he died of alcoholism. And so in his family that his dad died was, you know, okay, let's move on. And he had a lot of real crazy stories about growing up in his household. And I never flinched. I thought, oh, Okay, that's interesting. I made him more attractive, but I didn't understand why. So we got married. And uh, uh, it was tough on my parents, They, but they grew to accept him, and they made a wedding, and we got married, and we moved off to France. And we mo- and he was also a physician, by the way. I, I prefer to marry physicians, and I, I'm especially attracted to alcoholic physicians. I'm on number two, and I'm pretty sure that if I divorced Herb or he divorced me, that I'd go find another one, even with everything I know. It is my passion. They hang out at my house, not just Herb, but a whole bunch of other ones. Some of them are in this room. They're everywhere. Anyway, so I married this man who was the son of an alcoholic and had a lot of very crazy stories and crazy family. And, you know, we stayed married long enough to have my son Gabriel, and it didn't work out. He stayed in this country to practice medicine, and we split up. And he's still living in this country in Chicago. But he's a big part of my story because my attraction to him is definitely, as I look back, related to my need to fix, you know, my need to take care of people, my attraction, and my attraction to living on the edge, you know, and it, it, I was living on the edge. I mean, we were just crazy. There were some wonderful things about it, and I guess one of the great joys of recovery is to not regret the past, and I don't. I have no regrets, um, and I have no anger towards this man now. I had plenty back then. And he, he basically, he was the one who left, and I did all kinds of things to try and make it work out but it it wasn't fixable. Um, In the middle of all of this, and I was going to school, I became a helping professional. I work in the public schools, and my role is very entwined with more fixing and more making it right. And to those of you who are in helping professions, and actually I think it's many codependents going to helping professions because it just fills our soul. I mean, my soul gets filled with needy people, you know, who thank me when I help them. Or not, doesn't matter. But I really, that's what I thrive on. And so I began working um, very early with, with elementary kids. But I didn't last long there because I was so attracted to adolescence. I mean, talk about a, 
a wonderful time and a kind of a needy time. I, I found myself working with teenagers. And at some point, I also found myself um, being the drug-free schools coordinator. I mean, you know, it's all coming together. <laughs> By this time, I, I was a single mom. I was one of those super moms that was talked about earlier in the week. And I must tell you that, well, and I remember in France, my metaphor for how I did my parenting with my son and how strong I was, was that when we lived in France, we had to go up four flights of stairs. There was no elevator. And I would carry him and six or eight bags. They had the plastic bags before we did with the handles. And I would carry six or eight heavy grocery bags with this kid on my hip up all four flights of stairs on my own, set the bags down, open the door, come in, take care of the kids, unpack the bags. I mean, it's just a metaphor for how I lived my life. You know, I could do it all. I lived many years as a single parent back in Ann Arbor um, as this super mom, and my character defects, you know, my characteristics didn't really change in that time, but I really was basically relationship-free for a long time, and that was pretty much a conscious decision. I just thought I needed to raise my kid. It's kind of nice sometimes to be a single parent because you're always right. So for those of you who have had that experience, I I really I treasured that. And um, I think I had a a pretty good time of raising my son for those seven years or so that I was on my own. During that time, I had a student who I had sort of intervened on, but not with any professional sense of what I was doing. And he went off to treatment. And he came back from treatment, and he picked me up. His name is Eddie. Picked me up, twirled me around the room, sat me down and said, I need to tell you about Alanon. Now this is a, by now he was 16 years old. I'd had him as a student when he was 13 and 14. This is a kid sending me to an Alanon meeting, you know, after telling me about packaging drugs in the back of my classroom and smoking dope when we were walking around the field for exercise. I mean, it was, it was really kind of difficult to hear, but he'd had 11 months in treatment and he was sober and, and I, so I went. Well, I went because I knew he would ask me if I went. Right. It didn't go because of anything he really said to me other than I would go because he would ask me if I went and I couldn't bear to not do what I was asked by this kid who was just in recovery. It was so, so cool. So I went to Al-Anon and so I will tell you about my first meeting. I was the only teacher there. I did, a lot of teachers don't go just because they have kids in the classroom with, with problems. And I, I was trying to figure out how to relate, and there were a lot of spouses, and there were a lot of parents, and there were, you know, the pa- people who had parents who were addicts. And there was me, who was his teacher. But what happened for me in that first meeting, and I don't remember much of the contents, is there was something different about these people. I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't know how they got the way they were. But there was something about them that was very attractive. There was an independence in the way they talked. There was a communication thing going on that made a lot of sense. And so I went in frequently for a little while. Um, I was um, asked to run a treatment center for teenagers, a drug treatment center for them and their families. And I, I went off on this journey. I took a leave from school, and I went off on this new career path, really a temporary path, and I was in the middle of setting this thing up and learning a whole lot about treatment when my cousin called me and said, I'd like you to come for dinner Friday night because um, Milt, who's her husband, has um, someone he'd like you to meet. And I said, well, I don't really care who's there. I mean, I'd really gotten away from needing to have a relationship in my head, I thought, which you'll find out wasn't so so true. It was just delusional. Um, so I went to my cousin's house for dinner, and I met this man. Uh, who later told me that when he was invited to dinner by my cousin's husband, Milt, that Milt said to him, he, he had asked Milt, did he know any nice Jewish girls? And Milt said, no, but I'll introduce you to my cousin's, to my wife's cousin. <laughs> and so if you know Milt's humor, um, that made a lot of sense. So we were fixed up, so to speak. And Herb was sitting there, and, you know, it, it wasn't like it was a real lively evening. There was something kind of attractive about the man. Um, he was nursing a, a drink and, uh, and, uh, and kind of nodding out at the table intermittently. <laughs> Still found him kind of attractive, you know. 
So, and I thought, he's a Jewish doctor. My parents will love him, you know? <laughs> and there was some truth to that because, I, you know, don't forget, the first marriage that didn't work out was kind of rebelling against all of how I was brought up and, um, I never gave up any of that. I just rebelled against my parents. And this second one had, you know, so anyways. So I decided maybe I'd call him. So I called my cousin to get his number and got his number. And before I could call him, he called me and asked me out. And I think I had softball practice. We, I was on a team called the Great Pretenders. Isn't that perfect? Um, so... My son was off in Chicago because he, he went to see his dad in the summers and Herb and I got together and we were taking a walk. Now he knew I was running a treatment program and so he figured it was probably a really good idea to tell me that he just got out of treatment because he figured I'd figure it out and it would be better for him to tell me than for me to figure it out. And I knew as a person who was newly a treatment professional that you don't have relationships for a year, right? That's sort of the rule. Nobody follows it, but that's what they tell you. And I even went to see a supervisor and said, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, I'm really attracted to this man. She said, why don't you go to Victoria's Secret and just jump right in? I thought, okay. That's interesting advice, you know. (laughs) Sounded good to me. So um, Herb and I went out. We went to the Dairy Queen. He told me his whole sad tale. I thought it was fabulous. (laughs) And I did say to him, though, well, you know, didn't you have a drink when we were at Susie and Melts? He said, oh, I can't drink. Well, I knew if, you know, I knew in treatment, you know, drugs and alcohol were all kind of thrown together. You didn't really sort it out, you know. And I said, well, I don't think you're supposed to drink. So anyways, we started going on these dates to to AA meetings. Combine, you know, I'd go to my Al-Anon meeting, he'd go to AA. But on the fifth day after we met, um, he invited me for dinner. So I dressed up, you know, I was, I dressed up, I was so excited about it, and I bought fizzy water, cause he can't drink, and, um, I, you know, showed up at his place, and we had this fabulous dinner, and, you know, by the end of five days of this kind of dating, five days of dating, we were engaged. <laughs> Our kids hadn't met, but we were pretty sure it wouldn't be a problem. One was five years old. Gabe was five years older than Aaron, and so, you know, I'm I'm an educator. I know that five-year gap is a good thing. You know, they're not going to be too close. And um, pretty soon within that five days, we actually had an opportunity to meet my parents in Detroit because they're from the other side of the state, and I knew that would go well, and they loved him immediately. Love at first sight, Jewish doctor. And and he was he's a sweet you know he's a sweet man and and they they couldn't believe it and of course we didn't tell him we were engaged we were already engaged by them but we did, we did, we didn't tell anybody we didn't think we should it was probably a good idea now we tell it because it's so it's so ridiculous you know it's really important to say that that in my early days of this I I was really not thinking in the long term at all I was very spontaneous. Um, so, you know, we got engaged. Um, our kids actually, the first time they met, I mean, maybe that was a sign from God. The first time they met, they were, they fell in love with each other, you know. The big one took the hand of the little one and led him to the raspberry patch where we picked berries. That was our first time together. And we would just look at each other and say, isn't this wonderful instant family? Just add water. Aren't we great? And you know what? It was that great. It was that great. I mean, I'm not making it up. It was that great. So we got married, and uh, we weren't going to too many meetings by now. I think at that by that point, I can't speak for her, but I did hear him say to a psychiatrist I wanted to call under the couch um, that he didn't need meetings anymore because I was his spouse. <laughs> I knew that was the I knew that was not correct, um, not not going to work. And so, you know, we weren't doing much in terms of recovery. Herb's mom got very ill, and as a result of her illness, um, she passed away um, pretty quickly after getting ill. It just didn't last very long, and Herb was immediately depressed, and I just thought that was perfectly normal. He had also, we had gone to look at a house, and he had fallen off. He, you know, was climbing up to look through a window, and he kind of fell back and wrenched his back. And um, apparently he had wrenched his back before and knew how to 
take care of the pain, but I didn't know much about any of that. So by the time I, I married Herb and all this was going on, I was already like the perfect caretaker, the, the, the people pleaser. That was a big one for me. Um, I was a problem solver, a fixer. Um, I had a de- literally had a degree in codependency because my degree is in special ed and they teach you how to enable kids. Um, <laughs> at least in my area of expertise, which is working with emotionally you know, kids with emotional problems. And, and so I really did. I mean, I had a lot of skill at enabling. I had a master's degree in it. And I was a pretty grandiose know-it-all, you know, the treatment specialist, the education specialist. The, I had all the books. You know, I knew all the stuff. I mean, and, and actually really did know the stuff. I knew it up here. I didn't know any of it in here. And and so Herb was was really struggling and I I was really struggling living with him and I thought oh did I just do do it again a second marriage it's going to be in the toilet it's just awful um he was depressed we weren't communicating well he occasionally would fall asleep with his face falling in the plate and my son who was the older of the two boys would say to me you know Herb fell asleep in his plate mom I don't think that's normal and I would say, Gabe, his mother died. He's depressed. He's doing the best he can. Well, then he would go out and he would get ice cream a lot. And he would sit in a chair and read. He was one of those people who, whatever he was doing, he was doing it inward, not outward. And um, Gabe would say, Mom, Herb just bought another half a gallon of ice cream. He bought it a day ago and it's almost gone. I don't think this is normal. And I would, of course, come back with my usual comeback of he's depressed, his mother died. And you know, I really believed that. I believed it. A friend came over for dinner, and that was one of those nights where her nose kind of dipped in the potatoes. And she said to me, she said to me, do you think it's possible that he relapsed? She knew he was an addict. My family, by the way, did not know. And I said, well, um... I don't think so. I think he's depressed. And she said, but maybe he relapsed. And I said, well, I think he's depressed. I mean, that was my party line. Or maybe he's manic depressive, which would be really scary because I don't know anything about it. But definitely the depression is there. Well, I mean, you all know what was going on, but I still at this point didn't have a clue what was going on until we went to Florida in February. And I was thinking about this the other day, that we were flying down to Orlando, which is really where the recovery journey uh, was triggered for us because Herb's Bottom was at Disney World. And, I, I mean, I don't know that he counts it for bottom, but it, it, was, it was where the crashing and burning just was beginning to happen. And we were, the kids wanted to shop, and I thought it was great. And he said, I don't want to go shopping. We're not going shopping, you know, doing that alcoholic thing. And I just looked at him and said, I promised the kids they could shop. Here are the keys. Go back to the car if you want. And he looked at the three of us, and he said, which way do I go? I mean, we weren't too far, by the way, from the gate where you catch the boat. And we looked and we said, you know, we took a boat. He said, okay, we took a boat. Where do I get the boat? I mean, he didn't remember any of that. And by then he was complaining of headaches and not feeling well. And I thought, this depression's getting really bad. (laughs) So I called home and talked to the psychiatrist. You know, we all have... I mean, the addicts had those lengthy stories of looking for help in all the wrong places. And this psychiatrist who was trying to be really helpful said, well, you know, maybe he relapsed. I said, I think he's depressed. And well, maybe he relapsed. And if he gets sicker and you need to go to the hospital, you need to tell the ER doc that he's a drug addict. I said, okay, no problem. So that night he had a splitting headache, and I took him to the um, to the ER. And uh, he... You know, the the doctors started to treat him for um, his symptoms, and he didn't say anything about him being an addict. I didn't not say it because I, I didn't intentionally not say it. My denial was so thick that I didn't think to say it. I didn't even remember to say it. Never crossed my mind because in my mind he it had nothing to do with what was going on. So the ER doctor almost killed him, and that's the truth. And he walked out AMA. But let me let me just back up just a hair and say that 
when they were trying to figure out what was wrong with him, my father and I were in the waiting room three o'clock in the morning, Florida, right? And um, my dad turned to me and said, you know, your mom has these sleeping pills in the cupboard that she takes once in a blue moon if she really, really can't fall asleep. And there are only two left. And she had a whole bottle full and she hadn't used any the whole trip. And she's really not very happy, sort of all in one breath. And I said, I'll be right back. And that's what broke my denial. That's what, I mean, it was like God just took a club and went, now do you see what's going on? And I went in and shared it with the ER doc who was working hard at trying to reverse the, the damage from treating him for what he diagnosed and shared with her. And, and I went back and I told my dad, and my parents at that point didn't know my husband was an addict. It, it just didn't seem like it was for me to tell them, and, and Herb kept it to himself. And he never really told anybody. I mean, he went to a few meetings here and there, but, but it was a very private thing. Well, it wasn't private anymore, um, at least not in the family. And we went back, and things began to spin out of control. There was a bankruptcy pending. Um, our, our bankruptcy was financial, but the spiritual bankruptcy had already been going on for a while. And there was lots and lots of um, anger and depression. I mean, I, for me, I, I was just kind of, I didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't know yet that Al-Anon was, was an answer for me to get well. I just didn't know what to do. All this knowledge, you know, I'm a professional, and it was useless. It was absolutely useless in my case. I could not apply it in my own household. And, you know, I mean, at one point, when Herb was sick and eating all that ice cream and hanging out in the chair, he got pneumonia. I didn't know it was pneumonia, but, like, I was going to be not codependent because he was being stubborn and not going to the doctor. So I left him in the chair eating his ice cream and nursing himself and refusing to go to the doctor for a whole weekend. And... Every time I called the house, nobody answered. So I was the one who really suffered that weekend. I mean, it was torment. I was way at it, far out of town. And I called my cousin who went over there and, and, um, and found him like a wreck. I mean, he had pneumonia. Well, he didn't want to go in because he didn't want to get caught, right? But at the point that the Florida thing happened, it, you know, the gig was up. So we came back, and I came back. We both came back on a pink cloud. Okay, because see, now my professional self was kicking in. I knew about recovery. Isn't recovery grand? That's what I told everybody who was in the program I was working in. Come on, this is great stuff. Look what's happening. Um, and we got back, and there was this whole series of events, and I can't really put it together chronologically, but let's just say that at some point the DEA, it was actually, was it on my birthday that the DEA showed up? Yes, it was on my birthday that the DEA showed up, not at our house, but at his place of work. And so I was out for lunch with his cousin who introduced us, who will, by the way, take absolutely no, no credit at all for introducing us, in fact. Um, so Herb came home on my birthday with no job and problems with the DEA and um, needing a couple additional lawyers from what we already had with bankruptcy and some other things going on. And I mean, this was an abyss at this point. It was just an abyss. At some point in all of this, um, was a Friday night. On Friday night, we have a Sabbath dinner. This, I'm gonna, there, there are three Sabbath dinners I should talk about. One is this one. We had Sabbath dinner, and I was preparing dinner, and he, he, the newspaper was there, and I opened up the newspaper, and you know, the inside page of the front page, above the fold, was a very long story about my husband. Things I didn't know. And it was, it, I mean, I remember how that felt, you know. It was the loneliest, most awful feeling in the world that our life had just been exposed to the entire world, and I didn't even know about it. You know, I was still clueless. Well, at that point, I knew how to ask for help a little bit, and I called my dad, and he he's a wise man. He said, you know, figure out somebody you know you can trust and call him up and read him the article, and then just listen to him. So I called a woman who's who's um, a real role model for me. She's now in her 80s. And, and I said, Sylvia, you know, let me read this to you. And I read it to her, and then she expressed this intense love for us and how she was there to support us. How my dad knew this trick, I don't know. Um, but it, it sort of saved me and allowed me to, to see that 
I could recover from that newspaper article and some of the things going on. And it was time for treatment, you know. I mean, it didn't happen right away, and I don't remember exactly the timeline, um, but treatment was going to happen. The first treatment was in Chelsea. Um, it was a nut ward, and I, I still don't know why they didn't keep me there as well. Um, when when Herb was locked up that first time, uh, I wanted everything to be normal so badly that I packed up a Friday night Sabbath dinner and some candlesticks and took it out to the nut ward and set it up at a table with my kids. And we sat and had a Friday night dinner at the nut ward. So that's Friday night dinner number two. And it gave me some solace, but it, it only for the time that we ate the dinner and it, you know, there was nothing normal about it. Nothing normal about it. Herb ended up going to long-term treatment and I ended up really diving into Al-Anon. Now, Mark, mind you, I count my birthday as my recovery day. That's the day Herb came home with the DEA problems and no license and, I mean, it was it was devastating for me, and I went boohooing to an Al-Anon meeting, and they said, "Why don't you go first? And I said, "Okay, <laughs> he ruined my life. Every birthday from now on is just going to be hideous and horrible, and it's just going to remind me of this terrible, awful day." And this guy went next, and he said, "You know what? I had something really bad." He tells this horrible story of something that happened on his birthday. He says, "Every birthday now, I mark my recovery." Because you remember how you are today. Because a year from now, you're going to remember what happened on your birthday today. And every birthday for the rest of your life, you get to mark your recovery. And what a gift that is. And I don't, I, I don't remember who it was who told me that. It was a, I, I don't, you know, I haven't seen the man to thank him. But it was such a big gift. It was such a big gift because every birthday is now a celebration of my recovery. It's, it shares the same date as my recovery date. So. That's basically, you know, what it was like. And what happened was, of course, this treatment thing. And me going to Al-Anon. Now, Herb went to a treatment center in a much warmer place than we live with a nice swimming pool and volleyball. Assorted other entertainments for if they were good boys and girls and followed the program and did what they were supposed to do. And some good things happened, like he called me after the first day, and he, he maybe it was the second or third day, but he, he had now what I know to be a spiritual awakening. Something had completely changed for him. And it was simultaneously great joy for me and great pain because I wasn't there and I couldn't understand it. I, I could hear it, but I, I, you know, I wasn't a part of it. I wasn't there and I didn't make it happen, that was for sure. And he came back from treatment, Lord knows I was resentful about those Sunday poolside meetings. And he was a black belt in AA, and he's really good at memorizing stuff. And so he would just spout off the page number and the lines. And I don't know, for any of you who are new and your spouse went to treatment, if you've experienced the same thing, I just wanted to smack him every time he quoted the big book. Smack him. Because I couldn't quote much of anything. I knew the slogans. I could bring up a slogan, big deal. Everybody can do the slogans. I mean, he could cite the page number, and and he was dipping into that book, and he was going to meetings every day. And, of course, he was unemployed because they had stripped his license, right? Now, at that point, I had been to Family Week, I really, and I had gone to a lot of Al-Anon. In fact, while he was gone, within three days of his departure, I went to an Al-Anon meeting. I remember this. turned to one of the old-timers there and said, You know, I feel great. This Al-Anon stuff is starting to really work. You know, it's been three days of a meeting every day, and I am feeling wonderful. And she just looked at me and said, Girlfriend, your husband isn't living in your house. <laughs> and I thought, oh. <laughs> you mean it's not the Al-Anon, it's the respite. And, you know, there was a certain amount of truth to that. I mean, there, it was actually both things, I'm sure, working at the same time. But I was so clueless. I thought, now I'm going to be this Alan on Black Belt. And the truth was, I just didn't have anything that would kick up my codependency, you know? I mean, the kids weren't acting out. They were, they were, in fact, you know, both of them weren't around that much. It was summer by now. Um, or approaching summer. Anyways, he's off in treatment. I'm resentment as heck, resentful as heck. And he comes home and he's now doing, he's not working and he's doing AA meetings. And this is a really important part of our story because this was a difficult time. 
there was all this joy about coming home from treatment, but he came back different, and I was different. And it was enough to stay sober for him, I'm sure, and it was certainly enough for me to just survive another day of being the one who was working and handling the kids and doing everything. And, and here we had this, you know, how do we do this? How do we survive this? I went to meetings a lot. I had that resentment going for a long time. The recovery was more important than the family, and now I thank God for that. I get it. I get that if he doesn't have his recovery, we can't stay married for, for long. Um, the family's not going to stay cohesive for long. I mean, it, it just without the recovery, we have not much of anything. Now, the good news for me is that my recovery in Al-Anon is my responsibility. And so regardless of what happens with anyone else in the family's recovery, um, I can continue to recover, and that is a precious gift to me. My um, my Al-Anon program, program consisted of step one, step two, step three, over and over and over and over again. I sat at the tables and talked about my powerlessness and about God and all that stuff. And it, it became pretty inadequate. You know, at a certain point, we started coming to IDAA. Grand Rapids was our first meeting. It was really important. Of course, they, get, they put us in charge. Herb did, he'd been sober maybe a year. He did a scientific session, and I'd been in Al-Anon really in a meaningful way for about a year, and they had me leading meetings, and I didn't even hardly know what a meeting was. And that was really good for us. I can't tell you how good that was for us and how grateful I am for that. But we had arguments, and, and we had bills, and I, here's my level of insanity. I was mad because Herb was unemployed, and I was, you know, I always was good at carrying those grocery bags and a kid on my hip up the steps, but that, you know, now I didn't have a choice of whether or not to be the hero. I just had to work because because I had to work, because we needed to have the, the income. So I was resentful. I was so mad at him. He was standing, He was making dinner. He was taking care of the kids. He was even emptying the dishwasher. And I was um, off working, and I'd come home so resentful because I'd worked and he hadn't. Well, lo and behold, he got a temporary, you know, partial license back. I don't, I don't remember exactly how the license thing worked, but he, he was able to go back to work, and one of the recovering docs helped him go back to work. And I was resentful because he wasn't home taking care of the kids and emptying the dishwasher and, and, you know, walking the dogs and doing all that stuff. Now I had to work and do some of that stuff. Okay, that was a big spiritual awakening for me because I caught myself in that. And I thought, wow, I am insane from all of this. I am really nuts, mad if he's not working and mad if he is working. That's not about him. That's about me. And I think it was a turning point in my program. I joined an AWOL group. I began to work all 12 steps, one at a time, mind you, in order the first time through, um, did a fourth and fifth step inventory. We, Herb had a sponsor. I had a sponsor. Herb, Herb and I had arguments. He had, we had one big argument, and he, I, I was ready to kill him. I don't remember what it was about. He said it was about spilled coffee the other night. And I, I just barely remember the incident, but I remember the post-incident. I was just completely unraveled. And he took off and he went to see his sponsor. And he came back and I was sitting on the stoop, just, you know, smoke coming out my ears. And he came up to me and he said, can we walk? And I said, sure. And we started to walk and he said, I owe you an amend. I owe you an apology. Well, I thought I was going to have a coronary. <laughs> this was behavior I was not used to. And so... He looked at me and said, I went to see Harold, and he helped me. I was wrong, he said. And he tells me this story, and what Harold shared with him was an argument that Harold had had with his wife, and his wife paused, and she, she, you know, he's fighting with her, and she pauses, and she points at her wedding band, and she says, Honey, honey, you see this? It means we're on the same side. And that was kind of an awakening for the two of us as a couple. You know, that this wasn't about one of us being right or wrong. And by the way, we still both enjoy being right, and that's a problem. But but it was true that, you know, we were in this together. This wasn't about one of us being healthier or not healthier. This was about us working at recovering together. Herb on his track, me on mine, the kids on theirs, IDAA, major gift. Kids didn't come to the Grand Rapids meeting. Oh, Herb went to the Boca meeting, so that was more phone calls from the beach. I didn't like that. But I couldn't afford to go, right? So I didn't. So that's kind of the early recovery 
peace, you know. That's where we were at. And, it, and you know, when I, when I say the joy is in the journey, there were moments of joy. We found a $20 bill once. Uh, we were really struggling financially. It was horrible. I mean, the big night out was Pizza Hut and a movie with the kids, and we did it twice in a year. Everything else we did didn't cost money. But you know what? We learned to sled and toboggan and roller skate at the free park. And um, and my my son said to me the other day, you talk about that like that was fun. That wasn't that much fun. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I have a really skewed vision of what that was like for them. But um, but at least, you know, I've watched my kids be able to manage without having much money. And they really have some skills from that because we all had to develop them. So early recovery was a difficult time. It was a challenging time. And I think um, the most important part of it for, for us was that we were both going to meetings. We both had sponsors. And we were both committed. And we often talked about commitment, that we were going to commit to this recovery and we were going to commit to each other. And that meant that if time got rough, we weren't going to walk away. We were going to work it out. So what's it like now? Well, I'm no longer resentful about alcoholics being at the house all the time. And if I, if I had ever dreamed of what a joyful life would be like, I couldn't have come up with anything as good as what we have now. We have these great kids, you know, and a wonderful family. We have parents on both sides who love us. We have our health. And every day we know all of that because of this program, because we don't take it for granted. We go to meetings. We know exactly where we could go back to in a heartbeat. The old behaviors, all that old stuff, that's like an old worn-out pair of jeans. You know, putting it back on wouldn't be that hard. be real comfortable. be real dangerous, but be real comfortable. Um... Some of our recovery is rubbed off on the rest of the family in kind of funny ways. Um, my parents don't attend meetings, but I see them having some recovery and some of the things they say and a lot of respect for recovery. My, my mother and I fought for years. I mean, th- here's a, a joyful story of recovery. My mother and I fought for years. I mean, from adolescence on, we just fought. We loved each other, but we argued about everything. My father was turning 75, and we were going to have a barbecue at our house with lots of extended family. And I went walking with a friend who knows a bit about recovery, and she said, you know, practice with me. Sure, Mom, we can do it that way. (laughs) That's a good idea, Mom. We'll do that. And I started to laugh, and I said, you know, there's some wisdom in what you're telling me. I'm going to try that. So my mom got there. My mom's pretty controlling in the kitchen, and she said, let's put the meat on this platter. And I said, great idea. (laughs) And... Then she started talking about chopping vegetables, and I said, okay, we'll do it that way. And about ten minutes into this, she paused and looked at me and says, okay, I get the game, I can play it too. (laughs) So the whole day, and it was a lot of people and a lot of preparation, the whole day, back and forth, sure, we'll do it that way. Oh, okay, we can do it that way. We had no arguments, we laughed till we cried. And we do that to this day and haven't had another argument in, in the kitchen. And it is a blessing, a blessing to not have that pettiness going on anymore. Because you know how important is it? That's a, that's a nice slogan. How important is it? And do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? Sometimes I want to be right. <laughs> Mostly I want to be happy, but sometimes I still want to be right. That's why this is a journey, you know, and you don't really get to that destination. Here's some other things we do. Well, there's, you know, you've heard so much about the program. So there's the 12 steps and the and the 12, you know, um, traditions. The traditions are wonderful. For people who have been in the program a little while and you've never stuck your nose in the traditions, check it out. I mean, the amount of wisdom in those traditions is every bit as powerful as what's in the 12 steps, and they guide my life every single day. And I go back to them when I have a problem at work or a problem at home and say, what would the traditions teach me about this and, and how I should be, react? Um, Prayer and meditation is a huge part. God plays a huge part. Sponsorship and, and service plays a huge part. My sponsor, I told you, my sponsors are in the room. Some sponsees are in the room. I have a grand sponsee at the conference. That's cool. And that keeps me well. And, you know, I have sponsees who say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for spending so much time with me. And I go, well, it keeps me healthy. 
I mean, you don't understand. I'm not just doing this for you. I'm doing it because this is what keeps my program alive and healthy. So it's kind of a selfish act. We often take two cars. Now, if you haven't tried that, I strongly recommend it. One of our problems was we, we, we both had to, you know, we had to get there at a certain time and leave at a certain time, but they weren't the same times. Well, that's a problem, and we used to fight a lot about it. And my Alanon taught me that, you know what, if I took my own car, I could eliminate this problem. That's one way to do it. And so we often take our own cars. I go to movies by myself. Sometimes I go with her. Sometimes I go with the kids. But if I want to see the movie, I don't wait for somebody to want to go with me. That was profound the first time I did it. Profound. Mostly, I'd just try and find somebody, and when I couldn't, I'd be resentful for two or three or four days. Now, if I want to go to the movie, I go. We have at our house um, on Saturday night. Well, on Saturday night, we, we have a date every Saturday night. We sometimes meet friends for dinner. We often go out, just the two of us, for sushi, which we both love. We go to a Saturday night open talk and then out for coffee, and coffee is often at our house. And I used to resent the heck out of that, you know. These alcoholics would just come, you know, bouncing into my house like they own the place. Didn't even know all of them, you know. And something changed. I can't explain it, but something changed. One day I suddenly realized that this community of recovering people that I had joined in Ann Arbor, and it's a very, very special group in in a lot of ways, but it's that that was the biggest gift on earth and that, frankly, socializing outside of that circle wasn't always safe. And while I still do that, that doing it over the long haul is a little boring as well. Now, I don't mean to say that people who don't have alcohol and drug problems in their family are boring, but it's just different. And the stories aren't nearly as funny. (laughs) Now, you don't really think you're funny if you're not on the inside. Like having one one of our friends talk about driving his car off a cliff, crawling up to the road and getting sober eight years later. We think that's funny. But when he tells it in front of regular people, they, they get a real funny look while we're, la- we're all laughing. <laughs> and that humor, that humor has been very healing. I mean, talk about the joy of recovery. To be able to look at our past and laugh about it. We laugh about those newspaper articles. One of our friends keeps copies. You know, I don't have copies, but he's got copies. If I ever want to go back and read them, I know who to call. So let me just tell you a few things about the joy, and then I'm going to stop. Um, Finding beauty in small things. A flower, a squirrel, um, you know, just something one of the students says to me that is kind of quirky and beautiful in its own way. New Year's Eve at our house, when the house fills up with 60 or 70 drunks, and they're significant others, and we sit from 11 to 12, and we have a New Year's Eve meeting, and we end it at midnight, and we all start our year in recovery together. I'm no longer a higher power for my husband, though sometimes I don't act that way. I'm not my kid's higher power. I'm not my parents' higher power. It's a tremendous relief, and it allows me some time to find some other things to do with my time. I uh, gently, every day when I pray and meditate, wrap each of my family members one at a time in a blanket and hand them over to their higher power. Not mine, theirs. And I'm grateful to know that. We have financial recovery. We're here. We went out for dinner. We have had a blast being here. I don't know if we really had any more fun than when we didn't have any money, though. I have to say that, that recovery here at IDAA is just plain wonderful. And uh, it's been wonderful all along. That part's been a great journey. I was able to go back to school and get another degree and make some changes at work. Just many, many, many gifts, many gifts. Our children um, are a tremendous blessing. They have their own paths to recovery that they will have to beat and find on their own. But you know what? They know where to find it. I don't know what circular squiggly path they'll take to get there, but they surely know where it is. And... I'm grateful for alcoholism in my family and for Herb's recovery and for all the all of the stress and strain 
and challenges that it brought because without it, you know, if I didn't have enough pain, I would have never, never gotten into this program and worked at these steps as hard as I have. Uh, and, and I'm sad because sometimes I see people who just need it so badly and they just don't get here, you know. So I don't take ever take for granted this recovery process, IDAA, all of you, the stories. I just don't take it for granted. I have never felt more grateful or blessed in my life than I do today. So with my higher power and the meetings and all of you and my recovering family, I'm here today with much gratitude and I hope some humility. I like to be funny and I, I decided I would, you know, there, there's the talk you plan to give, the talk you give, the talk you wished you gave. So I did all the things my sponsor told me to do. I prayed before I got up here and so um, we'll see if I have the meltdown. You can ask me later tonight. <laughs> I'm really, really grateful for this opportunity, and I just want to end with a reading that's from Courage to Change. Let's see if I can get the right page. Hold on. Okay. Legends have often told of spiritual journeys in which the hero must face great challenges before gaining treasure at the journey's end. As the heroes of our own stories, we in Al-Anon have also embarked upon a spiritual journey, one of self-discovery. With the help of our program and the support of our fellowship, we explore our hidden motives, secrets, buried memories, and unrecognized talents. As we draw upon the wisdom of Al-Anon's steps, principles, and tools, we learn to overcome obstacles to personal growth, such as the effects of alcoholism and a variety of defects of character. We are guided on this journey by a power greater than ourselves, but the steps we take must be our own. Only by facing the darkness can we receive the treasure, the light and joy of emerging released from all that has held us back. Self-knowledge is the path to personal freedom. The steps give me directions and help me to cope with anything I encounter along the way. And here's a quote from Wendell Berry. The world cannot be discovered by a journey of miles, only by a spiritual journey by which we arrive at the ground at our feet and learn to be at home. I am so grateful and blessed, and I thank you for this opportunity today.